Hi, I am Jen Matthews, and I'm an adoptee. You're listening to Conversations About Adoption, a podcast where I interview and converse with other adoptees and first parents about their stories and other issues around adoption. My goal is to spread the perspectives of other adoptees and first parents so we can challenge the common narratives and misconceptions of adoption and hopefully shed light on the social justice issues pertaining to adoption, as well as the issues adoptees and first parents face on a regular basis. Hey, I'm talking to Sarah. She is a fellow Baby Scoop adoptee who recently joined TikTok and started making some videos pertaining to adoption. Um, Yes. So can you tell me a little bit about your story? Sure, and thanks for having me on. I've never been on a podcast before. So my name's Sarah, and I am an adoptee from the BSE, and I know my non-IDID. I just wanted to kind of start with that. Just a little bit of humor that using lingo. Um, So I was adopted during the BSE or the baby scoop era. And it was a closed adoption. All I knew was what's referred to as, you know, non-identifying, non-IDID which is more or less driver license stats of my biological parents. Maybe a a bit more than that, but not too much more. And one thing that I found out decades later is that some fairly critical information in the non-ID was falsified by the adoption agency so that was that that really threw me for a loop it it still kind of does because something I believed my whole entire life about my biological father was far from what they told me regarding his age oh wow that's you gotta Mm -hmm. I don't understand why why they do that I didn't get much information either. It was just that they told my mom and dad that my parents were teenagers. And it was only partially true. My mother was a teenager, but my dad was 21. So, you know, it's like, oh, that wasn't accurate. You know, but nothing else really on my end did they change. And there was no agency involved. It was just an attorney. Um, But Yeah. yeah. So did you grow up knowing that you were adopted? Like, when were you told or how did that go for you? From a young age, I probably in about first grade, perhaps kindergarten, but for sure by first grade, they gave me a book called, was it The Chosen Child or The Chosen Baby? Um, a A book geared you know, on a child level about basically how lucky I was to be chosen. Are you familiar with that book? 
I'm not familiar with that book, but I'm familiar with that expression. My adoptive parents pulled that one on me, too. You're special, lucky, and chosen. And it never sat right with me because my parents had a biological daughter before me. And so I felt like, well, if I'm special, then what is she? <laughs> it just didn't sit right, you know? Yeah. But I'm not familiar with that book, no. I know there's a few books like that out there. And so um, kind of going back to what you were saying about your parents being teenagers, or that's what you were told. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to share because in my case, it was a world away from a teenager. So it was the same story. Um, both of my parents were teenagers. And, and so that's why they had to give me up. And yeah. so my whole entire life, I thought of them as kind of high school sweethearts. And I pictured my father as 17 on a skateboard. Yeah. I, I kind of had this whole, um, what I wanted to believe was sure. that they really, really wanted to. And he, it was important for me to believe that he really wanted to keep me, but just couldn't because he was a teenager yeah. found out um kind of a mind f if that's okay to say it like no that. no but it's fine decades later i find out that um he wasn't he wasn't a teenager in fact he was about 42 at the time of my birth and already had two sons 10 and 12 years older than me wow uh, wow not with her obviously um she was a teenager yeah uh, yeah it's... and i've heard that they they sometimes try to make babies more um like quote unquote adoptable yeah so I, I can see why that would be preferable, sound a little better to potential adoptive parents that they were a couple teenage high school kids than a teenage girl and a 42-year-old man. And also some of my ethnicity was falsified, I think, to make me um, sound very white, white. Huh. What is your ethnicity um, by birth? Um, um, so I'm part Irish, part Italian, and um, it was, and then a couple of small fractions of other things. Okay, but I have, um, I have, kind of tan olive skin and they were told on the non-id id it said both of my parents were 100 percent irish and so um you know growing up from time to time and then as i got older every once in a while you know how sometimes people are just curious and they're like oh what are you yeah and i would pair it back oh i'm 100 percent irish and pretty much across the board every single time I would say that they would they would question that and um 
I remember this one time at a party when I was about 20, this one guy was really intrigued. Like, no, really? Like, are you joking? Tell me, like, you, you can't be 100%. <laughs> Yeah, and I I just knew like, and then I find out um, so it's it's just corrupt, you know that they for more many more reasons than just this, but it it pissed me off that the social worker did that because that's the little identity that I had she screwed around with it yeah and and I was so mad when I found out I was like oh like could I file a lawsuit well that social worker is probably long you know deceased by now and it's just not going to happen so I think sometimes too that maybe what it was is you know back then they didn't realize or even try to take into account how important these small details would be to us that had closed adoptions because it's all we had as far as like where we came from. And they just, to them, it was just their job and they're just putting something on a form. You know what I mean? There was no, mm-hmm. af- there was no forethought into the fact that, hey, these are human beings that are going to grow up and want to know things, you know? And so, like, it might not even have been malicious. It might have just been more careless. You know what I mean? In some cases. I know in certain other ones, the purpose was way more sinister than, Mm -hmm. you know, careless. Especially when you go back to, like, Georgia Tan and uh, her trying to hide stolen babies from parents that are trying to find them. You know? Um, Like, I I interviewed a... uh, a Georgia Tan survivor and her birth date was altered, you know, and that's very common. That's awful. Yeah. You know, funny, oddly enough, I, I, to, to be honest, I, I only recently heard of Georgia Tan. Um, but I did start to read this book called The Girls, wait, The Girls Who Went Away or yeah. Were Sent Away. Yeah. And I got partway through it. It's, it's triggering. triggering. Yeah. <laughs> did your mother get sent away to an unwed mother's home? Do you know? Or how did that go for her, um, if you know? So I don't believe that she was sent to a maternity home actually i'm not i'm not really sure about that but she um uh one of the things that apparently she wanted was for me to be raised in a catholic home okay um so I'm not sure what I want to express about this. I feel like, you know, we're, I I kind of felt like in a sense, my life wasn't my own because people were choosing for me. Sure. Um, and then the whole thing about the birth certificate, that bothered me. Sure. Because I knew even as, when I was young, 
when I was a young teenager and I looked at it, it, it bothered me yeah. because the way you already know, you know, the way it works is like it, it's written as if I was born to my adoptive parents yeah. <clears throat> and no matter how good of a relationship or not you have with your adoptive parents, it's just a lie. It's just not. And, you know, that's my story, the beginning of my life. So, yeah, exactly. I know it's, um, I, I have my birth certificate that was, you know, issued after I was adopted and, it's actually in my adoptive mom's handwriting. She filled it out. And, uh, you know, it's it's like they gave birth to me. And it's like, well, I know there's another one somewhere that I can't have that, uh, you know, has the actual people <laughs> who created me on it. And it's really mm-hmm. something when you stop and think about it. I've actually had a few videos that I've made. And people were like, I had no idea they changed the birth certificate. I'm like, oh, yeah. They definitely do, you know, it's part of the whole process. And not even being allowed as an adult to obtain your own original birth certificate. Right. I just can't get over that. I'm still not over. I probably won't ever be over that. I shouldn't be over that. I don't think anyone should get over that. No, it's a civil rights violation. It absolutely is. It's a document that's about us and like, we're not allowed to have it. Like, why? What? What's that going to do? You know, I get it. I get it. So did you have, um, did you grow up with uh, any other siblings or was it just you? Mm-hmm. So I'm the oldest. And then a couple years later, they adopted my younger adoptive sibling, a sister, Okay. And so she was also from the BSE and this whole same thing. Yeah. And then my youngest sibling is there, came along. Um, It's kind of ironic because the reason they adopted us was they couldn't um, conceive. And then down the line, she ended up. Uh, getting pregnant with my youngest sibling who's their biological son yeah and in my family he was definitely given a prominent role um in many in many things yeah Um, you feel like he was treated differently because he was biologically theirs not so much by my adoptive father, but a hundred percent by my adoptive mom. Mm-hmm. I believe that's because there's a real bond there. You know, she gave birth to him. That's a totally different thing. Like, I don't know that this is fact or not, but I have a theory that with adoptees, we don't bond with our parents, but we form attachments with them. You know, I feel like bonding is kind of reserved for those biological connections. And I could be totally off my rocker here, but that's just like the theory that I have. Because I've heard more often than not, you know, like 
I didn't have a bond with my adoptive mother. I was, I had an attachment to her and we had a tumultuous relationship, but she was still my mom. And like, but it didn't have like a bond, you know, I was very close with my adoptive dad, but not, not my mom very much at all. We Mm -hmm. just, we were kind of like oil and water a bit, (laughs) you know, And I've wondered about that sometimes about if there was some resentment. She actually, she definitely had resentment towards me. And I believe that it stems from um, her feeling, you know, the, the infertility and then being different from everyone else in the neighborhood and that she knew. So I have some empathy for that, you know, that however, you know, that, do you know what I'm saying? I have empathy about infertile. I'm not just like too bad people that are infertile. They just have to deal with it. I don't come from that. However, um, I think as time went by, I represented a reminder. Sure. Uh, It's uh, a reminder of that. And so when I was talking about how she treated uh, my my youngest sibling very different, Mm -hmm. one quick example is when my adoptive father passed away at his service before the service she told me and my sister that it was her request that only he be allowed to speak and share about our father so i just kind of felt like a stepkid sitting there yeah and i even wondered if some people who attended the service that were just more acquaintances or who had worked with him along time ago may have been under the impression that he was his only kid because usually other family members or certainly you know children if they want to share about their parent sure sure yeah that's definitely othering you know very hurtful yeah yeah i when my adoptive dad died I couldn't speak so it wasn't a problem for me but (laughs) we just let everybody else do the talking for us because I was a mess um I I couldn't have I I wouldn't have been able to do it myself but I understand like that desire to I totally get that and how that would make you feel othered I I knew my grandparents for three years when my grandfather died my maternal um my my biological mom's parents and I was included in the obituary and at the funeral and that was really moving for me I I did never expected it um but it was really something to actually be a part of that of course I got rejected by my grandmother the next day but that's a whole other story Oh. I feel like I was only around because my grandfather wanted to know me. My grandmother was hung up with that whole, like, I was a lie she kept for 30 years, so all of a sudden me being around was like 
putting that in her face. Hey, you lied to people for all this time. And I think she was having a hard time coping with that. So. Yeah. Yeah. So. um, I was trying to think. I think I I lost my train of thought. (laughs) So when, when did you start to get curious like were you always curious about your family yeah I was just hoping we'd go in that direction because I wanted to share some about that so always curious from the time I was um, a teenager I I longed to know who my biological mother especially but both parents I longed to know who they were I imagined in my mind you know how they were um However, this is the sad part, and I know this isn't just solely, you know, me, but I think it applies to probably many adoptees. I felt this need to put off searching to protect my adoptive parents, especially my adoptive father. And so I put off the search really long instead of just getting going on it in my 20s. I think also I felt like because I was under the assumption or the belief what I was told all those years they were teenagers I thought I still had plenty of time that they still had plenty of time being only 17 18 years older than me so I waited a really 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 long time and in late 2015 I submitted a petition to the court to request uh, the court where adoptions are handled to request um, my OBC, um, my birth certificate and information. And I got a letter a week later in the mail that the judge denied it. So, I called a lawyer and he told me that they pretty much will deny it unless it's like something extreme where you have uh, terminal cancer and you need a, a bone marrow match from a very close immediate family member, something like that. So um, I found a registry online and that have search angels. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Yeah, I'm absolutely uh, aware of search angels. They're they're something else. Yeah, so um and it, it just got there were twists and turns to it. The first search angel um, they 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 work with I guess microfish, microfiche. You know, they asked for my my birthday and the county that I was born in. Do you know what I mean? The microfish? Yeah, they also have access to databases too that they pay subscriptions mm-hmm. for. That helps with all that too. Some do anyway. So it took um, 
it was kind of a little bit of a wild goose chase because the first searcher, I'm not sure what she was doing. And since I've never done that before, I thought that's the way it was supposed to be done. But she gave me, she sent me a list of four women who were, who were around that age, close to the county that I was born in at that time. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, she focused on this one woman and said she felt like she was most likely um, the one. Mm-hmm. And so I I contacted her with the way she recommended. And um, she, she kind of led me to believe that she was the one. Mm-hmm. And but she wasn't. So I wasted time. I don't know if she was just lonely and wanted someone to talk to. So um, I finally did bottom line, find out the identity of my biological mom. Um, But they don't have um, what do you call it? Data of where she is. Or a phone number. Oh, did you do DNA? Ancestry DNA or anything yeah, like that? Yeah, I, I did DNA and then that's how I, um, it's, it's really like, I don't know, in my mind, it's kind of complicated how it all came together. Yeah. But I, I did find out, like I said, about my biological father and, but he passed away many years ago and that I had two older siblings and I, I met my oldest brother in person. We had lunch and wow. It's, I just can't, you know, explain how it was to see him in person and see this person who's, some of his mannerisms were like mine and the way he walked and all of that. Yeah. I bet it was very emotional. I bet it was super emotional. I know it was for me, like meeting my grandparents. It was, uh, I was really having a hard time on my way to meet them. Like drive, like my mom was driving me there and, uh, I was like writhing in my seat. I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) Like I was just riddled with anxiety and all of the feelings, you know, it's so scary in a way, isn't it? It is. I think there's a fear of rejection. I know from my, my adoptive sister that there was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, are they going to like me? Am I what they are they, do they have expectations? Like, am I going to be a disappointment? Like, it's just all the thoughts are flowing through your mind while you're, like, headed to this point to meet this person. You've waited your entire life to meet somebody that shares your DNA, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot. It's very intimidating. And, uh, like, it's a lot to process afterwards. I always tell people, you know, like, give yourself time. Don't keep yourself busy like it 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 matters i think for mental health mm-hmm. to just give yourself time to sit with it and think all the thoughts and feel the feelings because i didn't do that 
and I, I had myself in a pretty bad place. I was just like, jumped right in, was meeting everybody all at once and involved in all these activities, working full time, taking care of my niece on my one day off. So on my other day off, I was like doing all the running around and meeting birth family and all that stuff and, and doing activities with them. And I didn't allow myself time to process. And I really was in a bad place mentally. Like it just all came crashing down one day and I sobbed for like an hour and a half. I didn't realize that's what I needed to do because <laughs> I wasn't allowing myself to feel my feelings at all. And um, like, I kind of was going through this phase where I was feeling nothing. I was on purpose watching movies that always made me laugh and nothing and watching movies that would make me cry. Nothing. You know, and it was kind of alarming. It's like, what is going on with me? Like, why am I like emotionally dead right now? And it was because I had suppressed everything that I was feeling. And, you know, it was just like to the point where literally any emotion I had was suppressed for a while. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I can't really think about many other circumstances in life where someone has all of these feelings and everything their whole entire life and then in a very short amount of time are um you know dealing with it yeah and i, I was mean, also going from life. zero information to like what feels like immense amounts of information about yourself you know mm-hmm at least for me. And one phone call I went from knowing, you know, your parents are teenagers from the North Hills of Pittsburgh. That's all I knew to, oh, you've got, you know, grandparents, you have an uncle, you have a brother, you have, you know, it's just like all of it. And it, it was so much. It was so much. And they live not far away from me either. So, mm-hmm. yeah, my bus in junior high literally went past my mother's grave every day two years i had no idea no idea uh, <laughs> i was a mind bender when i figured that uh, out so yeah it was really really strange and when you when you express it that way like having almost zero information and then all of a sudden it's exploding into all of this stuff and then for me because some of those key factors were were false yeah so it just really like I I was really struggling that yeah. you know. I think wait, it's what <laughs> like talk about gaslighting. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, so uh, I, you know, I didn't like. I did the same thing as you. I had like fantasies in my mind about them, and I was curious about them, but I never verbalized any of it because I was protecting my mom's feelings. Because anytime I would say anything or start to ask any questions, of course, they had no information either, but I would see her like tense up, you know, and, and get very stiff. And then she would dismiss it like, well, it doesn't matter because you're, you're ours now anyways. And it was like, okay. So it was like a really perplexing place to be in because I did have these thoughts, but I couldn't share them with anybody, you know? And I would wonder, did they die in a car accident? Are they going to come and find me one day? 
you know, are they still married and have kids together or are they still together and have kids together? Like all these different scenarios in my head, you know, and I think that's only natural for kids to do that when there's no information. So I feel if adoption does have to happen, opens better because then at least they have some knowledge, you know, it's just not it's not right to keep that information from a person, in my opinion. Right. I mean, I also have this rosy, idyllic picture of, I, I already said that, but I pictured my parents as high school sweethearts yeah. and they wanted to keep me so bad. And I, for some reason, I always pictured my biological father waiting down in the lobby, like, heartbroken and trying anything he could to do he could do to keep me yeah and it just really was like being punched in the stomach to find out he was 42 and he he didn't want to keep me yeah yeah that's definitely would be a gut punch I, you know, well, it's like, I'm fine. You can use whatever language you want on this podcast. I have it set to like explicit. So people don't have to censor themselves because we're adults with adult feelings. And my biggest word, like like a sailor, but I would be like to be free to use sometimes when I have strong emotions about things. Totally fine. When I found out that my brother and I went to high school at the same time, that was a mind fuck. And that was the word I used for it. You know, I just picture I would picture like just passing were there times you literally like passed by the person, you uh-huh. know, passed by your brother in the hallway. And it's like he bullied me. <laughs> so, yeah, we definitely interacted. You mean he bullied you in high school when uh-huh. he didn't know you were his sister? Right. That's right. We had no <sighs> idea. And he bullied me. And he's younger than me. But, you know, hmm. that's interesting. My adoptive. um youngest sibling brother has bullied me and then um the other thing that I experienced that's why I like when there's um safe spaces lives where one of the rules is no speaking on behalf of adoptees like someone will come on there and say oh my sister's adopted and she's just fine with it what's your problem yeah right but um But when he was a lot younger, he said that his goal was to have a couple of kids naturally and adopt one. And and then he said his reason was because he knew how well it worked out for us and he can relate to what it's like being an adoptee. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) I might have a. african-american friend but i can't just group myself join in their group and say yeah i i know what it's like you know exactly i can speak for you and i was thinking if you knew then you would not wanting (laughs) that would not be what you're saying so you don't (laughs) it's so common for people to be like oh well i haven't i've gotten into arguments with people on tiktok so many times because they say stuff like, I have an adopted sister and she's just fine. It's like, um, please don't speak for her because you don't know what the reality of her mind is like, you know. It's just like, no, <laughs> please don't. And he never asked me. 
or my sister, like, hey, how do you guys feel? What is it like? He right. just, um, just simply by virtue of the fact that he grew up with us, that he could designate himself like a spokesperson for us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. He likes to be a spokesperson for people. Yeah, that doesn't work. And that's that's going to be an excellent song clip for a TikTok video. I'm going to use that. Because <laughs> it's so true. No spokespeople no. allowed. <laughs> Nobody is allowed to speak for adoptees and share their stories. Like, I have issues with, you know, I, I was having a conversation with a first mom the other day. Very nice lady. And she was telling me about her experience with the agency that she placed through. And they definitely seem to have very different tactics. And um, <laughs> because she said they didn't even inform the people that she matched, that she picked to be his parents until after her child was born. And I'm like, that's that's actually a good thing because then there's no pressuring, you know. But she was still doing that thing where she was speaking for her child. And, uh-huh. and I didn't want to stop her because we were having such a nice conversation. But in my mind, I'm like, please don't, you know, you can't know what the inner workings of another person's mind are, are like to speak on their behalf. It's just nobody can, you know, it's like my son's on the spectrum and I can say to people, he's just fine. But I don't know what goes on in his mind when he's in school and he's around other kids and you know Mm -hmm. it's I can't do that that's not right and it's like you said the perfect analogy with being a person of another race and saying I'm friends with them and no no (laughs) you know that's like a definite boundary people need to learn Um, especially with adoptees I don't know why it is so much that way with adoptees that people think they know how we are and uh, yeah it's a very important thing I think sometimes I don't know. I'm just going to be a little bold and in asserting this because I I do believe it's true. I think there's some like marginalized groups that people that aren't in that group want to hop on in it and just say, "Hey, I know, I know," <laughs> and I'm going to speak for you. I'm going to speak for these people because I'm, I'm, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm affiliated with them. <laughs> So you don't know if your mother is deceased or not? Is that what you're okay. saying? I'm sorry, I didn't catch that. So Jen, um, I had to hit the pause button on, oh, I was saying for emotional reasons and mental health reasons. Sure. I've hit the pause button on finding out. Um, I can have an actual investigator find out which costs a lot of money yeah. or a search angel. But I'm, I just, I think I really do need to just, you know, move past my anxiety because I've had the button, the pause button on for a while now, because when they said it's um, unusual not to be able to find her any contact information. Yeah. They, implied that it's it's possible she's deceased but then shouldn't there still be something, you know some, some kind record of, like a death certificate or something 
There should be some obituary. So it's kind of like I'm afraid to look in that closet and see. I understand. But then if I don't look, I feel like I'm going to regret it later. Yeah. It's it's definitely, it's like Pandora's box in a way. You know, to open it or not to open it. And I, I get that. With me, like, you know, I'm thinking about like our ages. I don't know how old you are. I'm I'm I'll be fifty two in March. And I'm fifty seven. Okay. I mean the older you get, the higher the likelihood of them being gone there is, you know. Um, for me I didn't search until I was thirty, but my mother had been deceased when she was only twenty seven years old. So Oh, I'm so sorry. I never never had the chance, you know, I was eleven years old when she died. So it's hard. And like, I had a feeling she was already because I had been doing mutual consent reunion registries for a few years at that point. And I had started to say to people that if she wasn't looking for me, I felt like she had to be gone. And Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't like being right, but (laughs) here we are. So it's hard. It's one of those things where you have to be able to find acceptance and and that's really that's that's all you can do at a point is just let your brain go through all the thoughts of the what ifs what could have been's what should have been's and all those things and just understand that it's not in your control and you know sometimes it's like cathartic for people to journal you know like write letters to these people that they are looking for but can't find or you know just for yourself to help you process your feelings and your thoughts about Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and um like I, I I've done that I've written a couple letters to my mother and uh I did a video recently where I read uh a letter that I wrote to my mom before I knew she was deceased and I was so clearly in the fog (laughs) when I wrote it it was so weird to have that voice of myself from then and hear it and look back and be like, wow, I I was still very clueless about the realities of adoption. And it's where, like, I don't really blame people in society for mm-hmm. believing what they believe about adoption because the propaganda mm-hmm. is so strong. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just been around for decades. Yeah. And it's just, there's so much money behind you know in the industry to have the the power to put forth this you know the whole false narrative about what it is and isn't right and like it's it's crazy like when they started people started getting upset about these kids being separated from their parents at the border which is awful. I'm not trying to like minimize that in any way at all. But all of a sudden like that's happening. People know about it. And there's these memes being shared about how wrong it is to separate children from their parents and how this causes trauma. And I'm sitting here going, adoptees have been saying this for decades and nobody wants to hear us. You know, it's kind of frustrating in a way. It's, you know, it's really, and it takes on different expressions. You know, I, I shared with a friend of mine 
when I thought I knew who I was excited and I wanted to share with her about um, having found out the identity of my biological mother and her response was a curt well I always say love is what makes a family and I was thinking well good it just sounded so um, patronizing yeah and like I, I don't quite know how to um, dissect that, but there's a message of dismissal in that. Definitely. Like just kind of patting you on your head. And like, well, I always say love, love, love's what makes a family. And coming from a person who has her whole genetic family intact, looks like her mother, you know? Yeah. And she's going to tell me that, and I'm not it's just kind of a mind fuck because it's like, then am I going to rebut that by saying no love doesn't make a family? Cause of course love is important, but that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's a different, <sighs> different side of things. <laughs> yeah. I definitely, that's the word I had in my mind when you were describing that scenario. I'm like, that was so dismissive. <laughs> and it was such a sweet, it's like kind of, you know, like if she had just come right out and said, you know, well, you know, that's nice. I'm not really interested. I could actually deal with that better on an emotional level yeah. than this subtle gaslighting of how love makes a family because, of course, love is important in a family. So it just left me really perplexed and pissed off because I knew what she was trying to do, yeah. um, even though I don't. Some people I, take, I can't really say why, you know. Some people take the mentality of let sleeping dogs lie. Like my my partner's mom is very much like that. When I started, you know, I already had I I literally went through a reunion three months before I met my partner. <laughs> so he's been with this like wild ride with me for quite a bit of it. And um, you know, I, I would be telling my my um his mom about stuff and she was like oh she's like I don't know she's like I don't go messing around with things and I'm like okay well that's you I do you do you <laughs> like I do because I want to know I'm like it's different for you because you actually know where you came from you know and like when I started digging in the ancestry tree I found a couple things in her tree that are not a big deal at all but because of the time that it happened it was a big deal and it was all shush, shush. We don't talk about that. You know, mm. I think it was like a divorce or something. God forbid somebody gets divorced. You know, like nowadays it's common practice. But back then, if you were Catholic, mm-mm. you know, and so that was a very risque topic. So I can even imagine like how it is with, you know, adoption. And like I was a secret for 30 years. So, like, those family secrets, I don't think they should be in place. I think family secrets should always be exposed and people deal with the ramifications of their actions instead of, like, trying to avoid it their whole lives, you know? Mm -hmm. That's my opinion anyway. Yeah. And then it's left, there's less to deal with later. If everything is a big secret. Right. You know, it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks when you find things out later. Yeah, exactly. And people aren't going to trust you. I mean, I was so hurt. I was like, happy to find out I have two older siblings. 
but tremendously hurt that, well, they weren't not and see again it's not that I would want them to be placed for adoption it's just that you know that I was why was it I kept yeah exactly like we already struggle with that as it is it's like that crime wound concept you know from Nancy Verrier's book not that I'm trying to promote it because I I've been learning more lately about her book I haven't been able to ever get the whole way through it because I get really triggered Um, but a lot of it is what helps me come out of the fog and because I realized holy cap I do that I do that I do that and and like it just helped me recognize certain things about adoption and what it has how it has influenced my being so to speak and um, but when you think about it all it makes perfect sense that a child that was relinquished is going to question themselves and their value. You know, I very much did, you know, I was like, why wasn't I good enough to be kept? What was wrong with me? Was I bad? Had I done something wrong? Like, no, like, was I, I was born with like a deformity in my foot. Like, was that the reason why I was given up? Like just constantly trying to figure out in my mind, the reason you know, I wasn't with my mother, which is kind of sad because I was a little kid. I shouldn't have had to try and process that on my own, you know, but I was. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I always felt like there wasn't really an open door anyways for me to come to my adoptive parents and ask them about it or just express how I'm feeling. Yeah, I think they and in large part, I mean, that's just a, a while ago you were saying and you don't blame people in society for for believing what the industry puts out there. And that, you know, I understand my adoptive parents were under the notion that this is kind of the way I think it was packaged a baby if you adopt them fairly young, although I was almost two months. I wasn't a newborn. I was adopted from foster care at close to two months. But I think they had the notion that if you adopt a newborn or a very young infant, it's almost kind of like a blank slate. Yeah, that's the blank slate. Give them this nice book and tell them they were special and chosen and just go from there. No need to look back. No need for questions. We don't need to do that. You can thank Georgia for that. Like thanks theory. georgia thanks not thanks yep f you georgia <laughs> yep yep see the reason why is because eugenics was really really popular around that time and people didn't want to adopt baby because babies because they thought oh well they will inherit mom's bad moral fiber and like Ugh. yeah so in Ugh. order to ease their worries about you know, adopting someone that was going to be lacking moral fiber, it was like, oh no, they're gonna, you know, they're blank slate, you can make them what you want. No, but, you know, thanks, but no. And that's that's where that mentality came from. They were trying to encourage adoptions because they had yeah, orphans. The, the stigma of unwed mothers and how they were bad. Oh yeah. Bad, bad. Yeah. Meanwhile, they were doing what everybody else was doing. They were just the ones that got pregnant. 
And then it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, um, uh, infertile adoptive mother has a better moral high ground or character than just, you know, it could be that my biological mother was a very kind, good person. Sure. Um, who, like you said, was doing what a lot of people were doing. Yeah. She just happened to be pregnant. And also, which, you know, probably my adoptive mom back in the day was doing yep. before they were married. Exactly. You know what I mean? So. Yep, exactly. They just were the ones, <clears throat> you know, the girls who went away, The ba- they were bad girls. And it's like the contradiction, you know, it's, it's like so... Uh, Oh, it was, I think it's in the book, The Girls Who Went Away. She talks about how, you know, boys were expected to understand sex already. Well, who are they learning with? You know, oh, the bad girls. And it's like, wait, you know, it's just such a two-sided kind of, I'm trying to think, double standard. It's very much a double standard. You know, if the boys are out there having sex, then that's fine, but because they don't get pregnant. There's no value no, there, placed. There was no, there was zero stigma for. No, fathers. there's there was no such thing as unwed. You didn't hear that term, an unwed father. <laughs> yeah, and it's because there's no value placed on a male's virginity at all, none. You know, and that's all that's about. I think, which is ridiculous, but I think that has a lot to do with it. There's this value on a girl being pure you know, when she gets married. And so God forbid she was already, you know, impure. It's like, I really have problems with these people that go through these purity things. And, you know, I know just, this is like so triggering because I, I just, I, I feel so bad for all those women, many, most of them young that were exploited, shamed. Yeah. Violence. Um, and then just left, you know, I think I read in that book, don't quote me on that, but I think it was in that book I read that many of the mothers were told, you know, this is for the best. Uh You, you'll, you'll forget about this baby and just have a new baby. (laughs) And honestly, um, they were just exploited and then they were just left to yeah, deal. Exactly. I can't imagine the trauma of giving away your own baby. Just go on with your life and act like and this never happened. And then you're told like, it's kind of mentally normalized to you. Like you're told that you'll forget and you know, it's for the best and they just leave that trauma with them to deal with. Yeah. How could you it's forget that? Breaking. You know, I mean, heartbreaking it is i really i i feel that my mother struggled with depression because she was forced to give me up and i think that's why she was in the situation she was in like she got pregnant again while um in high school with my brother and married his dad i feel certain so that she wouldn't have to relinquish another one and but she was like in a bad state. She wasn't really able to take care of him properly. And, um, you know, his, his paternal grandparents threatened her with, you know, weaponizing CPS. If you don't give him to us, we're going to call CPS on you kind of thing. So they raised him. But 
you know, she was in an abusive relationship. And like, I feel maybe if she wasn't struggling with depression and mental health, she would have made better choices. You know, I don't know. It's all hearsay and coulda, shoulda, woulda. But like, these are things and thoughts that I struggle with myself, you know. And I know who the guy is. I, I know who he is. I know where he lives. And I want to talk to him often, but I, you know, I haven't pursued that. Not yet. I mean, it's, I, you know, speaking for myself, like I've struggled with mental health um, for decades. Yeah. I have panic attacks. I don't want to go into a list, but sure. Um, I began, I don't know if you're familiar. I'm, well, most likely for sure you are because you're um, studying social work. And a lot of that has to do with mental health, but dissociative, dissociating. Oh, yeah. And depression. I do that a lot. And identity. <laughs> yeah, I, I do that. I, it's adoptees are overrepresented in mental health care. Like I've found papers on that. It's 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 interesting. Of course, I think they're UK papers because the United States is a little too in love with adoption to put serious research into it. They're like, shh. Yeah. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. I saw, I was, I did a a TikTok video recently where I was showing how to find stuff in the legislation that's pertaining to adoption to write about. And, you know, nothing had started yet because they were still trying to elect a speaker of the house and all that kind of stuff. So there's nothing new. There might be now. Um, But the last time, last year, I had seen a bill that was put forth and it was to conduct more research on uh, the outcomes of adoptions and if they are satisfactory or not. And I'm like, who are they going to be surveying? You know. Is it going to be adoptive parents or adoptees? And of course it was a plan to like survey adopters. I'm like, no, (laughs) that's not who you should be asking if adoption was satisfactory or not. You know, it's supposed to be for the child. So why don't you ask the now adults that were adopted if they are satisfied with their adoption? You know, like it doesn't make sense to me. It's like a consumer. don't really consumer research I mean, is it possible they don't really want to know maybe because that might that might interfere with them being able to successfully market um i looked up a private adoption agency i i won't say the name of it but several weeks ago and even though i already know these things it was really mind-blowing i noticed um the use of language to yeah. manipulate and really, um, this might sound a little outlandish, but in the, I think subtle brainwashing. Oh, yeah. So I made a list. I started to get interested and I, I'm not a, I don't know how to do statistics or whatever, but I made a list of certain words that popped up with a much higher per- percentage than you would see in that you would otherwise normally see, like beautiful forever family um journey to me journey is a word i associate more positive than negative yeah if i was going through hell i wouldn't say it was a journey yeah Um, and so and then they would pair certain words together um 
a safe, loving home opportunity. Um, anyways, I don't have the list with me, but I started to, that got me thinking more. And, you know, back in the day, there was so much stigma for unwed, quote, unwed mothers yeah. that in large part, you know, doesn't exist. Not at anymore. least not nearly as much anymore. And so now they have to try new angles of manipulating and offering money. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, there was like, uh, we can even offer, um, besides covering your expenses and your, I believe it said rent, utilities, and yeah. in some cases, if you need a cell phone. <laughs> yep. So, but Meanwhile, I just found that. If you're on Medicaid or food stamps, you can get a free cell phone through the government. So you don't need that. You know, like there's all these resources Brand that new. they don't want people to know about. And um, and then if they have all that money, why can't they, you know, they could designate that to women that are expressing they'd like to be able to keep their baby uh -huh. if they were in a better currently financial position. Well, then they don't get their baby, their product to sell. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's disgusting in a way. It, it's it's really interesting if you examine the path of like modern adoption and how like from the baby scoop era to um, now, like it's very interesting, like when there was more availability, you know, starting in the 70s. Birth control became more available. Obviously, abortion became more accessible. Um, and also, coincidentally, the destigmatization of unwed motherhood was going on. And it was just like a big turning point. And during that time period, in the 80s, you see the popularity of transracial adoption and international adoption taking off. Because when it comes down to it, they just want a baby. And sometimes they don't care about, you know, race. And that's where you end up with these transracial adoptees. But, like, before that, they preferred the white babies. That's why, to this day, you can still find priceless of opportunities. And, like, the lighter-skinned babies are a higher price. And darker-skinned babies are a lower price, which is just complete bullshit and you know a life is a life but it just shows how much of a business it is you know and how much these babies are just a product for them to sell because if it wasn't that way they would all be priced the same way but they understand that supply and demand and they understand you know what people want and so they charge accordingly just like a product and it's disgusting you know, mm -hmm. truly disgusting. I saw, um, real quick before we wrap up, I just wanted to share. I saw this, I got lured <laughs> kind of. I saw this um, video come up on YouTube. It was uh -huh. about uh, international adoption. I forget what the title was, but it was something very like rosy. And I got curious. Uh huh. You know what they say about curiosity and cats. So uh -huh. I was curious and I started to watch it. And then I actually started to get lured in like, oh, maybe they're like, maybe in this case, as it goes along, um, you know, maybe this is okay at the very end. 
it's not funny, but it's just like gotcha at the very end when they have these credits. They're like, we thank these people. We thank our friends and church for helping with assistance. And then there was like, um, at the very end, like she was just an inconsequential person. We also want um, to mention a word of thanks to the biological mother who was brave enough, trigger warning, yeah. who was brave enough to leave her baby in a box for us to be able to attain the gift God planned for us. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. I really have a problem and with I was that. Like, oh, okay. You almost had me. I was almost starting to like drink the Kool-Aid a little bit of maybe just this one case. And then at the end, I'm like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. How do you feel about those baby boxes? Um, I I don't like them, but then I, I've, I've got shade thrown at me when I said that because, you know, if, as if like that's the only safe option for this baby to stay alive. I, yeah. Um, I mean, I want all babies to be safe. Right. But I don't, I, I will say that the adoptive mother in that video liking and thanking, it was just the way it was worded. Like, thank you for leaving the baby in a box because we prayed for this baby a long time ago and knew she would be ours. Ugh. It's ours. just, it's like that praying for somebody to be in a crisis situation. That's what it is. So I can get what I want. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's really problematic. I don't like the baby boxes. I mean, yes. Okay. It's better than a dumpster. Definitely. By all means, it's better than in a toilet, you know, and, and those kind of things. But, it just, I don't like the anonymity of it. I don't like that that baby is going to have no roots, no way until they grow up and decide to do DNA if they decide to. And imagine what that would feel like as that child to know that you were. I was abandoned. just literally thinking that if I knew I. And I, I think those adoptive parents will probably tell their their daughter, you know. Your mom was brave enough to leave you in this box. I um, I just can't. That, I mean, that would be, in a way, worse than, for me, like, when I think about that, like, you know, my mother was, you know, she was in the hospital and had a C-section and this was planned out. And, of course, growing up, I didn't know that she had no say in this plan. It was one her mother made was like, this is what we're doing. Um, but like, I don't know. There's just something about being left in a box. that just seems like, I, I don't know if that would just play on the psyche more. Of course, it depends on each person, you know, is unique. Um, but for me, that would really wreak havoc. I think to know I was just left in a goddamn box. I will say that I think society can definitely do a lot better and have more resources, mental health assistance like for women so to prevent some of them from getting to that point where they feel like that's their only option right I think we can do better but however with a caveat that yes I absolutely want all babies to be safe and I know it's not 
it's an idealistic picture to think resources would prevent all of those. Right. So I understand, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. And I'm glad that slowly and but surely mental health is becoming something that people are paying more attention to because definitely in our generation growing up, you know, like mental health was not even, it was an afterthought, you know, it was a complete afterthought and you know, we were left on our own to deal with it. And, um, so that's one thing like I feel adoptive parents need to acknowledge if nowadays if you want to adopt um, I feel adoptive parents need to be held to a higher standard I feel like they most definitely need to be trauma informed to understand what impact of adoption is on a child because it's not just you know rainbows and sunshine and everybody's happy you know I also think adoptive parents should be required to undergo a series of uh, not just one simple short evaluation, but at least several yeah. psychological social evaluations. Because I know for sure 100% when I was adopted, what it was about like the social worker coming over before the adoption being pr approved. Yeah, a couple of visits and my adoptive mom spoke of like being nervous and needing to vacuum and dust everything. So everything. So the focus was on the ex exterior. Yeah. Instead of who are these people? What are they about? Why do they want to adopt? What is their um, exactly. they had good finances, a nice home, nice neighborhood, married couple. That's what it was for us. My parents actually became friends with the social worker who was the quote unquote investigator. And it was just like she came over for coffee and was like a friend. And that was it. My adoption was based on her approval of them as potential friends, which mm -hmm. I mean, like I knew her, her whole, like up until she passed away in her eighties. And, um, she knew that I searched and met my family and stuff. And she was really happy for me, but like that's the thing there was no psychological evaluation it was just oh gonna come over and have some tea and see what your house looks like and make sure you have uh -huh. a crib and uh it's yeah like you said nice what church do you plan to take her to yeah. yeah exactly and that do you was know, like by it. the way if any agencies now do i i doubt it like i'm talking about thorough psychological evaluations where they actually have to pass with some kind of, if they completely fail and they're like, this person is a sociopath. I have um, no idea. And, you know, that's the thing, though. Even if they do that, like sociopaths, they can be smart enough to pass those tests and mm -hmm. not get caught. Very good point. Yeah. You know, and it's literally these people, adoptive parents or hopeful adopters can present themselves in any way that they want. And those people at the agency have no idea. And, you know, you only get caught, you know, with the background check, things that you got caught doing. If you haven't been caught it, doing yep, things yet, exactly. then nobody knows. And so that's where it's a shame because like CPS is so overrun and understaffed. Otherwise, you know, they should have a thing where like somebody checks up on, these kids once in a while you know 
But once that ink's dry, they're like, okay, the year, see you later. Have a nice life. Yeah. Yeah. I know that there was no post visit by any social worker. My adoptive mother mentioned being worried about her wanting to stop by because then she would have to make sure everything was clean and vacuumed. But, um, yeah, that was, um, the but time. I, think the more, I think the more rigorous they make the process or the more thorough. Yeah. Then some people with ulterior motives or who just aren't stable might drop out of the, yeah. Know, the Get weeded out along the way. Yeah. Yeah. It should be more than money that weeds people out from adopting you know because so many Mm -hmm. people are like i would adopt but it costs too much okay so those people are weeded out because of financial reasons but how many people are out there that have plenty of money to adopt but are not financially stable you know or who have substance abuse problems or whatever and that's that's the scary part of it Mm -hmm. so I know yeah. you have to get going at some point. Yeah, so whatever you need yeah, to, I'll let do. me know. Yeah, actually, I probably in a couple minutes. Okay. Um, Was there any wrap up? Um, any final thoughts you would like to? I just think there's so much. You know, there's so much to cover. Um, so I guess that would be for another podcast. <laughs> um, I'll just briefly mention for myself and again like just because adoptees share some common factors it doesn't mean we all share everything or like everything I do but for myself I always struggled with identity and people pleasing and I feel like I connect a lot of that to the way my life started out was being an answer to my adoptive parents happiness yes And this might sound a little, I don't know if this is kind of crazy or too far out there, but I do know that babies sense and understand more than we think they do. So um, maybe it was like some core sensing or understanding as an infant that I, my job was to make these people happy. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but it's more like on a, I don't know. I'm like trying a visceral to level. Yeah, visceral. That's the word. Yeah. I and understand. So I, later in life. And I, it was just kind of my job throughout life, too. Yeah. It's, and at a time, sometimes it's like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Like you're trying to hard to be part of your family and fit in with them. And, you know, you want people to be happy and you, because you want to be loved. And, you know, like it just sometimes just doesn't feel right, you know, and I, I get that. I struggled with identity issues, too, although mine are different uh, in a weird way because of having um, a Mexican adoptive mom. Like sometimes I forget that I'm not Mexican and because <laughs> I grew up with her and she spoke Spanish and we went to Mexico a lot when I was a kid. And so I, you know. I learned enough Spanish to play with my cousins when we were kids. And when I'm with them, like I, I always, they never made me feel othered. They never, never made me feel like I wasn't one of them at all, you know? So I grew up with this Mexican mom. Anytime she would see people that were Latino, she would get so excited and be like, 
go up and talk to them. Oh, what part of Mexico? Are you from Mexico? And what part are you from? And if they happen to be from the same town, it was like, whoa, and it was like this big extended family reunion thing, you know? So like, I still have this thing. When I see Latino people, I want to go talk to them and ask them where they're from. And it's like, I'm not Mexican. They're going to look at me like I'm crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Because, like, I have to remind myself that. No, they're going to think you're crazy. Don't go talk to them. (laughs) And it's such a weird thing to have to have a self-talk about, is it? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I just want to thank you for your time. I'm glad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. And I'm glad that there's more... um, more out there, more support, more discussions, awareness. And so, yeah, maybe we can talk again. It was, it was good talking with you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, oh. I'll uh, see you around on TikTok. And is it okay, oh, okay if I include your TikTok handle in the show notes so that people can find you there? Uh, sure. Yeah, okay. that's fine. All right. Well, you have a great day. Okay, Jen. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.